This month we'll spend in Romans 5. We've been through Romans 4 in two big chunks, and now we slow it down for Romans 5. It's one of the better known chapters, really, in all of the New Testament. But for all its familiarity, verse 3 still surprises, just to start there. More than that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And you think, man, what is that about? I mean, I see it in the Bible. I get it. I've heard people talk about this in, uh, in kind of outsized terms, but rejoice in my sufferings. I don't begin to know how that's possible. And adding degree of difficulty to this for us moderns, living at where we do in history, as people now into the 21st century, many of us are origin in the 20th century, uh, we tend to want to follow the counsel of Job's wife if we encounter suffering. Just curse God and die. Uh, that, that is never more true of, of moderns. And, and it's, it's interesting, when you look at this historically, our, our relationship to suffering, our accommodation for it, if you will, it's almost an entirely, I'm, I'm speaking from church history now, it's almost entirely a modern phenomenon Not until the 20th century on into where we live now do you find people turning on God when we suffer. It's completely based on assumptions that drive us in in the modern era that we are the masters through our technology and everything. Uh, If we just live in the right place, get the right kind of education, put the right kind of safety nets around our family, everything will be fine. We're in control. Throughout church history, we find lament. We find aching questions for God, but taking the long view historically, while no Christian wants suffering, no Christian wants to go through traumas, the effect it had on believers historically who felt the pain and who anguished to God, but the the effect was it was always something that sent people to God, not away from Him. We've, We've had that reversed in our modern era. This passage is as well-trafficked as it is because we're taught here that suffering actually has a role in our faith development, that for Christians it's not karma. Karma and grace are two different doctrines. And it's not karma, that somehow we're being punished if, uh, if we're going through suffering. That's what we tend to think because that's what suffering feels like. And, and yet suffering has a role in our faith development. That's why this passage is as well-trafficked as it's been through history. Now, your suffering may be mild compared to severities for others. And you may even kind of dismiss things that you've suffered as well. That's, that's just me being selfish. I really shouldn't get all worked up. But your suffering is your suffering. And yes, it, it happens on a, on a, on a scale and, and there are points of, of great severity that you look at and you think, man, I can't believe, I, I don't know, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through that to, you know, just for more, for, for, for not a better way of putting it, the, the sort of normal aches and pains of, of life and living. But what this passage tells us is that suffering is not, it is not, it is not the experience of God punishing us. Now, how do we know that? Because verse 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And where there is peace with God, there's no punishment. The punishment was taken for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through, he's the agency, he's the instrument through which we come to a place with God where he has no need to punish us. So suffering is not that. If you're suffering something today, and most 
in the room probably are something. You're suffering physically. You're suffering relationally. That's a lot of our suffering there. You may just be suffering existentially. That's the idea that it's just, you don't, you can't pinpoint what it is, but you're depressed. You've just got, you, you've got anxiety. You've got struggles. You've, if you're suffering today, something you wish God would lift from you, lift you out of it. You want to, you want to be done. You want God to change that thing. And He may do that. He may yet change the circumstance for you. More often than not, however, God is changing us in and through the things that we suffer. Those things may not lift. They may, they may not. This is gospel doctrine. But how in the world is it even possible? And who does this? Verse 3, who rejoices in their sufferings? It's uh, really difficult to square with this, particularly, again, as moderns, because suffering feels like punishment. And everything in our cultural context says if you're suffering, you're not doing something right. You didn't choose the right neighborhood. You didn't choose the car. Didn't you research your car before you bought it? Didn't you know that one had rollover tendencies? Didn't you, didn't you do your homework on your tires? Didn't you think about where you sent your kid uh, to that after-school program in that part of town, etc., and so on? We have this. We have. We are such control freaks, modern people, that this really sits very difficult with us. But the testimony of Scripture, not just in this passage, but all through the New Testament, we're told suffering has a role. It's not punishment, but it is development. And every generation of Christians has to learn this. And so I hope to help with that today. Now you hear this and you may already start arguing with it. And you say, well, I don't want that kind of development. And no one does. Not even the Apostle Paul himself wanted that kind of development. You remember the place where he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this from me, this suffering. He called it his thorn, 2 Corinthians 12. Nobody wants it. I'm not a Christian masochist. Suffering is not good in itself. It's suffering. And, and suffering is, is around in the world because the world has fallen and flawed and, 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 and the rot goes deep. And we all encounter it to some degree on the spectrum. We all encounter it, some more than others, others, but we all do. And so suffering is not good in itself where the good is possibly experienced because a lot of Christians don't experience it. And so I say possibly because it's not automatic. You have to work with this. Where the good is possibly experienced is in the Lord's development of us. And that, that, that moves from asking the, the why this happened or why is this happening question to the what now question. We talked a lot about that in Lamentations. You can ask the why question. You can ask the how long question. But you have to ask the what now, what for question. And that's where you experience the Lord and his people in and through the hard thing. Don't read the progression that we have in this passage. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And then you get this progression because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Don't take that as automatic, that that just happens just like that. It takes careful, patient work. It takes perspective. It takes talking to wise Christians. It it takes sometimes just being in it a while. It takes a kind of work to grow and gain in these things, endurance, character, and hope. And don't sentimentalize suffering. 
We monumentalize suffering, that is, we mark it, we mark its effects in our lives because God's Spirit is doing something in and through it. This is the promise of the gospel, that God's Spirit is doing something in and through us when we're suffering something. What is all that written lament in Scripture for? Which I've tried to expose this to. About every two years, I go through a suffering series in this church because suffering is so prevalent and prominent and we need a vocabulary for it. And lament is where grief finds its voice. What is memoir? I read a lot of memoir. I don't know about you, but I read a lot of memoir because a lot of memoir is monumentalizing something hard for what it held for me that I now hold on to as valuable to me. And so when you look at verses 3 through 5 here with endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame, when you look at these holdings, that's what we ought to think of endurance and character and hope as. Think of them as, a, as holdings, almost like investments. Your holdings in endurance, in character, in hope are going to yield. But as they do... As they grow and mature, your holdings in these things, to think about it this way, you might get easily defeated. You might get easily deflated. You might be somebody who's very easily discouraged. And what that often means is that you don't have enough experience in suffering. And please do not hear me, don't hear that as the equivalent of beatings will continue until morale increases. This is not a pirate ship, okay? Again, this is not the good ship Christian masochism. But suffering is, is universal. It's, it's the human condition living in a fallen world. And so it intersects with every life. And Christianity is not karmic. You're suffering because you're getting what you deserve. Grace says he suffers for you so you don't get what you deserve. So then Christianity does something different with suffering. It says that suffering is not punishment but it's it's development. And again, we argue with this. We fight with this. But this is the one thing I really want us to take from this passage today. I'm just going to give you one thing. Not two things, not three. Just one today. And it's what I've been saying. That our sufferings are not punishment, but development. And if you think this is just spin, you know, if you, I'm trying to get you to think about things in a certain way. That's what preachers do. Or, 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 you know, Christians think this way. Nobody but Christians think this way. Some of you may be cynical because of your sufferings. I don't, I don't say that to shame you at all. But there is empirical support. Empirical just means the stuff of research. The people that wear the white coats. Now you can put a white coat on and sell deodorant. You know, I mean, it's uh, anything with a white coat. Uh, translates, except in pediatric dentistry. I was talking to the pages about that this week, and Chuck Page said, in pediatric dentistry, the white coat does not help. <laughs> Kids are scared of that. But the rest of us, I put on a white coat up here, I can tell you anything, and you'll believe it. But research does bear it out that people need difficulties in order to develop enduring character qualities, like resiliency, which you cherish and prize when you're around people who are resilient, like um, less selfishness. Sometimes our troubles they, they sort of they sort of move uh, us away from that from that selfishness. We we gain more empathy. How else do people develop, grow except through troubles? One psychologist calls it post-traumatic growth, and he's not being flippant. Individuals don't grow. We cannot grow 
And communities don't even bond without some shared trouble. I have a friend who moved to a city up north to pastor a church there, and the city flooded. The main river that runs through that city, it overran its banks. This was big news uh, 10 or so years ago, and and it just put but the whole area was was put at risk. He met many of his church members sandbagging houses. That was a new pastor, my buddy. Uh, and, and most of his church members he met with grime and muck all over them because they'd been cleaning up from the floodwaters once the river started to recede. And he told me nothing endeared him to them and them to him like that experience of, of the shared natural trauma. If he had any thought going there of, Lord, why did you bring us here for the flood, not after it? He realized that in that church, in that community, all you had to say was the flood of, oh, whatever it was, and people were right there with you. Now, does that mean the flood happened to that town so my friend would be more endeared to his congregation? No. Try not to be real linear with this. Uh, Don't draw causal lines like that. But that there can be value coming out of suffering is is a deeply Christian idea. But psychology also bears this out. And I just say this for the benefit of those who want to fight with theology. Uh, Those who have in the back of your mind this thought that, you know, the Bible just cannot be right about this particular subject. And you you fight it. It's really American culture. It's American prosperity that that feeds us that, 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 that fighting. But I don't know if it helps you to hear psychology's take on this. Uh, It doesn't make Scripture more true to cite psychologists in corroboration, just for those of you who dismiss psychology on the other end of the spectrum. But take it for what it's worth. The research, not just what Scripture says, but the research bears it out. It bears out the truth of Scripture. That suffering will often change your values. It will hone and streamline what you feel like is really important in life, your priorities, your philosophies and perspectives. And the testimony of many is that the the change is for the better. Now, this never means we want to repeat the trouble. We want to go through the traumatized set of circumstances again for what we found it held for us, what it handed to us, and we've made part of our holdings and endurance and character and hope. But if you don't have endurance and character and hope, you miss those things if you don't have them. You find it extra hard to get through this life if you don't have endurance, character, and hope. And others will miss it for you if they experience you uh, deficient in those areas. Suffering often is the way our faith is developed in this framework. Now we're looking in this Romans series, this one in Romans 4 and 5, we're, we're, we're taking Romans in about five mini-series, and we're looking in this one at why faith matters. We looked in the last one, chapters 1 to 3, at why sin matters. We're getting to why grace matters in chapters 6 to 8 eventually. But here in the first five verses of chapter 5, we find that suffering is a kind of amino acid for faith. It's like a protein. Many through the centuries have said their faith wasn't real to them as a resource for actually living life as it is until they had known some suffering and that suffering drove them further into their faith. You know, coming back from Israel, many have said to me, you know, boy, doesn't a trip to to that place make the, 
the Bible just pop, you know, it comes more alive for you. And I, I know exactly what they mean by that. It does. But if anything really has made the Bible come alive for me, it's actually been suffering. Are you here, Lord, in this mine that I'm now down in? Where it's deep and it's dark and this stuff I'm breathing into my lungs doesn't, doesn't feel like it's good for me. Are you here? See, chapter 4, the reason we took it in two chunks is because chapter 4, preaching to a modern audience, chapter 4 is largely conceptual, though it's not abstract because we're given the person of Abraham. Abraham is put before us to say the way God, the basis for which God has always accepted people is by faith. Well, who does Abraham point to? His ultimate descendant, Jesus. And so who do you get in chapter 5? The Lord Jesus Christ, right there in the very first verse. Since we've been justified by faith, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's going to test you whether you believe that? Suffering. Because it feels like punishment. But how is it that we, this is what, this is preaching the gospel to yourself. How is it that we got to be justified? Through his suffering. It feels like punishment to us. God must be angry with me. Something might... I'm not saying that something might not be wrong in your life. God can't use suffering to get our attention in something, although don't worry about that. But how is it we got justified? Through his suffering, through his taking our punishment for us. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Sin is a righteousness problem. Remember that from chapters 1 through 3 in Romans? We all have sinned. Only Jesus did not. If you want in with God... The way to get in is not to set about being the best person you can be. You get yourself to the very best person there ever was. And you get what he accomplished and who he is all over you. Count Just this morning at Walgreens, I come in very early on Sunday mornings. There's a a young woman who works in uh, Walgreens. I've seen her before. She knows I'm a pastor. And she was listening to a speaker on her phone very early in the store and she didn't have her headphones in and so uh, she's in the next aisle over doing some things before she uh, rings me out because we all do breakfast at Walgreens, right? I mean, that's that's just a given. I know you're eating breakfast at Walgreens like I am on Sunday mornings. And I could hear the speaker on her phone in the next aisle and I recognized the voice but I couldn't place it because the voice was preaching. The voice was speaking. And... Um, He was preaching a go-inside-yourself gospel. It was this, uh, you have all the resources you need for success inside of you. And uh, he was saying it with such passion. There goes my grandson. (laughs) And he was saying it with such passion. And there was this Christian sheen all over his words. But it it wasn't the gospel. And when she checked me out, I, I said, uh, who is that? And she said, it's Steve Harvey. You know Steve Harvey? Family feud, Steve Harvey, the comedian, Steve Harvey. And I said, I thought he was a comedian. And she goes, no, he does, he does motivational speaking. But I have to say, and I, I, I really, you know how preachers are. They take these little jabs at people like this, you know. I don't mean any disrespect to Steve Hart, but it's clown car motivation. Because while it sounds empowering to tell people to look inside yourself for all that you need, 
we do not have the resources inside ourselves to deal with suffering. It's not there. For those resources, we have to be indwelled by one greater, and that's the Holy Spirit of God, who mediates the personal presence of Jesus Christ to us, and then we are developed by the one who indwells us, and he uses our sufferings as part of that development. This one thing that I want us to take away from these verses, that our sufferings are not punishment, but development. Development of endurance, development of character, development of hope. The ways we become less selfish, more empathetic, etc. and so on. All the things we could list out. But when I say our sufferings are not punishment, but development, don't hear me saying God doesn't send or allow sufferings into our lives. Because that's not the testimony of Scripture and experience. Don't hear me saying God won't send or allow sufferings in our lives. We're saying the suffering he allows or sends us is not punishment. That's off the table. It's not punishment because actually his only beloved son took the punishment in our place for us already. He took our punishment. This is the gospel. And through his doing that, what do we get? Verse 1. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And where that peace is established, there's no need for punishment. You don't punish someone you have peace with. If I said to you, I was reading the other day and and a a friend um, uh, had put this uh, on his, uh, his Twitter feed. The Christian life doesn't get easier, but it does get better. If I said that to you, what do you think about that? It's not a trick question. The Christian life doesn't get easier, but it does get better. I think that's true. I think that's what I'm living now at my age and place in life. I'm I'm sure somewhere someone is teaching Christians to expect their faith to make life easier for them. Steve Harvey and the rest of them. But most of us balk at hearing that because we know it doesn't wash. Suffering washes that right away. Most of us balk at at being taught that your faith is going to make life easier for you. And yet, here's the tension, we do assume, most of us, that Christian Christian faith ought to make our life easier in some way. We assume that. Why? Well, our materialism, primarily, it lulls us into this unexamined assumption that life should be easy, that I should be in control, or that I'll get eventually everything arranged in my life just so so that I'll have control. I'll just do this and that right, and I'll never know anything wrong. And we assume that because we undervalue. For one reason, we assume that because we're, very, we're more shaped by the world than we realize. We're more shaped by our surroundings than we realize. But the other reason is because we undervalue how much development we need in Christ. Look at verse 2. Through him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And if it's all of grace, he doesn't owe me anything. Though he gives me everything. And that's what verse 2 goes on to say. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 2 in a sentence is, he doesn't owe me anything, but he gives me everything. He doesn't owe us anything if it's by grace. And yet, what is hope? Hope is everything. It's everything. 
More than that, verse 3, there's more? Yeah, we rejoice in our sufferings. You go, wow, Paul, that doesn't sound like more. Sounds like less. Sounds like we're going the other direction now. I don't want sufferings. I mean, can we have another way here? How about I get to rejoice in something other than suffering? Rejoice in, su- rejoice in suffering, verse 3? What are you talking about? What are we rejoicing in? What's there rejoice in? Here it is, essence, that your faith is not karmic. And it's grace. What we're rejoicing in is that peace with God means God is not punishing us. Whatever else the suffering means, it doesn't mean that. And so the suffering, because I calculate that, because I know that, what does it take me to? It takes me to renewed appreciation. This is not punishment. Yeah, I don't want suffering. You don't want suffering. None of us, all God's children, none of us want suffering. But when it comes into my life, it is the opportunity not only to be developed, but one of the ways I get developed in endurance, character, and hope is that I move from there to the recognition that this is not punishment. And so that's how suffering preaches the gospel to me. The punishment was taken. I'm not even going to talk about discipline with you because I don't want to, I don't want to muddy these waters. I just want you to get the concept. Because a lot of you go right to exceptions and bless your heart for doing that, but that's what you do. All Southerners in the room know I just insulted you. Yes, I did. But in love. In Christ's love. Don't you love it when you get a critical letter and they sign it? In Christ's love. Yeah. yeah. And now Christ loves me, buddy. We're rejoicing that grace means God's glory covers us now. See, if, if suffering doesn't mean punishment, and that's off the table, then it means development. And development is hard. See, what you're saying, in a few moments we're going to take communion elements. You know what you're saying when you take communion? You're saying you believe this. You're saying you, you believe you stand righteous before God by grace through faith that he has given you peace in him and hope of him, life with him. There's no punishment in that. In fact, Romans 8, we'll come to it in Romans 8. Now there's no condemnation For those in Christ Jesus. So with that off the table, what is the suffering for? It's for development. That only, the only other alternative as I read life. The only other alternative is to to say, this is just random. This is unlucky. This is senseless. And that is the route to bitterness and confusion. Why do we need endurance and character and hope? You look like you could use a story right about now. Story is often better than explanation, isn't it? That's why Jesus preached in parables. Um, let me give you a story where faith, a faith story where endurance and character and hope all come together. A beautiful story that Brian Stevenson tells in his book, Just Mercy. Stevenson is an attorney who represents those most in need of representation in our criminal justice system, the poor, uh, those who have um, not had the justice system working for them. He is in Montgomery with an organization called Equal Justice Initiative. He tells us uh, about a 14-year-old boy that he once represented named Charlie. Charlie killed his mother's boyfriend. Uh, The mother's boyfriend had abused his mother repeatedly, uh, often in Charlie's presence. Sometimes he would just come home and find her with cuts and bruises, and it was because of him. And a night... Uh, came where the boyfriend came home. He was drunk. And for no provocation, for nothing, uh, he just 
hit his mother as hard as Charlie had ever seen his mother get hit. She collapsed to the floor. She banged her head on the counter. Her head was bleeding profusely as her 14-year-old son held her in his arms. And that was it. The boyfriend went into the room and passed out on the bed. And the boy went in the room and took the man's gun and shot him in the head. The man was a police officer. And so to make an example of him in Alabama, my home state, they put the 14-year-old into the adult population of the county jail. By the time Brian Stevenson got to him, prisoners had for the last three nights had their way with him. He was completely traumatized by that and by everything that he had been going through. And Stevenson said, I decided to take the case. We ultimately got Charlie's case transferred to juvenile court where the shooting was adjudicated as a juvenile offense. That meant Charlie wouldn't be sent to an adult prison and he would likely be released before he turned 18 in just a few years. I visited Charlie regularly and in time he recovered. He was a smart, sensitive child who was tormented by what he'd done and what he'd been through. At a talk I gave at a church months later, I spoke about Charlie and the plight of incarcerated children. Afterward, an older married couple approached me and insisted that they had to help Charlie. I tried to dissuade these kind people from thinking they could do anything, but I gave them my card, told them they could call me. I didn't expect to hear from them, but within days they called and they were persistent. We eventually agreed they would write a letter to Charlie and send it to me to pass on to him. When I received the letter weeks later, I read it. It was remarkable. Mr. and Ms. Jennings were a white couple in their mid-70s from a small community northeast of Birmingham. They were kind and generous people, active in their local church. They never missed a Sunday and were especially drawn to children in crisis. They spoke softly and always seemed to be smiling, but never appeared to be anything less than completely genuine and compassionate. They were affectionate with each other in a way that was endearing, frequently holding hands and leaning into each other. They dressed like farmers and owned 10 acres of land where they grew vegetables and lived simply. The trauma in their life is their one and only grandchild, whom they helped raise, had committed suicide when he was a teenager. And they'd never stopped grieving for him. Their grandson struggled with mental health problems during his short life. But he was a smart kid and they'd been putting money away to send him to college. They explained in their letter that they wanted to use the money they'd saved their grandson to help Charlie. Eventually, Charlie and this couple began corresponding with one another, building up to the day when the Jennings met Charlie at the juvenile detention facility. They later told me they loved him instantly. Charlie's grandmother, who had called Brian Stevenson about her grandson's plight, had died just a few months after she first called me, and his mother was still struggling after the tragedy of the shooting and Charlie's incarceration. Charlie had been apprehensive about meeting the the Jennings because he thought they wouldn't like him. But he told me after they left how much they seemed to care about him and how comforting that was the Jennings became his family. At one point early on, I tried to caution them against expecting too much from Charlie after his release. You know, he's been through a lot, I told them. I'm not sure he can just carry on as if nothing's ever happened. I want you to understand he may not be able to do everything you'd like him to do. They never accepted my warnings. Mrs. Jennings was rarely disagreeable or argumentative, but I learned she would grunt when someone said something she didn't completely accept. She told me, Well, we've all been through a lot, Brian, all of us. I know that some have been through more than others, but if we don't expect more from each other, hope better for one another, and recover from the hurt we experience, we are surely doomed. The Jennings helped Charlie get his general equivalency degree in detention, 
and insisted on financing his college education. They were there, along with his mother, to take him home when he was released. Hope does not put us to shame. That's a fascinating phrase in verse 5. You see it there in verse 5? And hope does not put us to shame because, because what? Because we've got good people in Birmingham who reach out to help a traumatized boy? No. Hope doesn't depend on the church getting it right. Great when we do. Great when we're known for this more than other things we're known for. Makes a great story when we get it right. Makes a real difference in real lives in need of healing. Thank God for that couple. But the reason hope does not put us to shame is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reason hope doesn't leave us in the lurch Hope doesn't leave us high and dry, holding the bag in the end, even more disappointed because it turns out our faith is futile and empty. It's because of who faith shows us. The reason all that isn't so is because of who faith shows us. Who faith, who the Holy Spirit of God puts in our primary view. Jesus Christ. The one who is the object of our hope, the author and finisher of our faith, of that couple in Birmingham's faith, and everybody in between. He's the one whose death we proclaim when we eat and drink these elements until he returns, which means he's alive. And we long for his appearing even as we take these elements because it's not a little wafer we want. It's not a little swig of juice we want. It's him we want. You get a little bitty taste because it's supposed to amplify out in your heart that this isn't enough. It's supposed to be unsatisfying. It's supposed to be at the same time satisfying. He's done it all for me and unsatisfying. I still want him. I want to see him. That's why we proclaim his death until he comes. It's him we want. The one who suffered on our behalf, who's suffering for us. His suffering force is our ultimate holding. It's our ultimate value. I'm going to pray and then our choir is going to sing us into taking communion together. Let's pray. Endurance, character, and hope don't seem like things, Lord, that um, we would really set off for ourselves, but we do in our sufferings, uh, gain in these things, grow in these things, not because we want to, but because you know we need to. Only you really know us. We don't know ourselves half as well as you know us. And so we're grateful today, Lord, that you welcome us to your table, that you welcome us into your presence to worship. We're thankful that you have given to us that you cannot be repaid. We're thankful that you have accomplished for us not just a standing with you, but a life Because hope opens the door to all the treasury of everything that we have with you. And we're grateful. Thank you, Lord, for this time of communion following. Thank you that we can draw near to you this way and be mindful of your drawing near to us the first go around and that the second time you will come back to rule and reign. Thank you that your suffering is complete, that it was finished and that we are the recipients of a finished work. In Jesus' name, amen.